I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 21. Uh, this is the last chapter of John's Gospel. Uh, we are going to look at the entire chapter this morning. It means the scripture reading's a little bit longer. The sermon's a tiny bit longer probably than other weeks. Uh, but this is a tremendous passage. Uh, it's a little difficult for me to split it up. So we're just going to look at the whole thing. Uh, I want to ask the question, what is your biggest regret? Maybe you said or did something you shouldn't have done. Uh, maybe it's something you've thought about many times. Man, I would do anything to take this one thing back. Uh, I doubt there is anybody in this room who doesn't know the sting of regret in some way. Uh, well, as we finish up John's Gospel this morning... Uh, the end of John 20 seemed like it would have been a natural place to conclude the gospel. We've seen three resurrection appearances, concluding with that great purpose statement of the Bible that you would believe and find life in Jesus' name. But there's one more resurrection encounter we need to read about, and that's the encounter with Peter. Uh, he had already encountered the risen Lord, but there was something between Peter and Jesus that had never been dealt with, and that is his three denials and the regret that came out of that. How could Peter ever get past that kind of regret? Given what Peter had done, how could he ever be useful for God's kingdom again? I think we often ask the same questions uh, about ourselves. Uh, so I just want to highlight three things from this chapter, the way that Peter experiences the cross, the way that Peter is commissioned to, pro to proclaim the cross, and then the way that Peter is embodied to live out the cross. So John chapter 21, we'll read the whole chapter this morning. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it, it, is, it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal, charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after, Jesus, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Chapter 21 opens in an unusual way. Uh, as chapter 20 closes, Jesus breathes the Spirit on the disciples and commissions them to take his forgiveness to the world. Chapter 21 opens with Peter saying, I am going fishing. Uh, and he does not mean, I'm going to go be a fisher of men. Uh, and the other disciples say to Peter, we will go with you. Uh, certainly the disciples needed to eat. That was their occupation to be fishermen. It was their vocation. Uh, but it's not wrong to wonder why Peter instigates this fishing trip. Uh, is he confused about his relationship to Christ and his present calling in light of his three denials? Is he thinking to himself, uh, Jesus commissioned me, but how can I really be a servant of Christ and do what I did? Uh, am I really following him or am I just a big phony? Even though Peter and the disciples are professional fishermen fishing at prime time at night, they don't catch anything, not a single fish, until a man from the shore tells them to cast their nets on the other side and they bring in this huge catch. Uh, twice we read in the opening section that this was Jesus revealing himself to the disciples. 
uh, verses 1 and 4, 14 uh, use that language of Jesus revealing himself. When does Jesus reveal himself? Uh, I think when nothing is working. When you've been out all night and haven't caught any fish. When we come to the end of ourselves and there's nothing that we can do. This has been the pattern of uh, John's gospel. Uh, when does Jesus reveal himself? When the wine runs out, when the invalid cannot get to the pool, when there's not enough food to feed all the people in the wilderness, when Lazarus has been in the tomb for three days. Uh, So many people expect Jesus to reveal himself in their lives when they are living the dream and then Jesus will show up and sort of applaud and say, good job, you've done well. Weakness and failure are often the place that God reveals himself to his servants. So Jesus sets up this meal on the beach around a charcoal fire. We'll come back to the charcoal fire. And after their breakfast of fish, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I don't think he's asking Do you love me more than you love fish? A lot of people really love fish. I don't think anybody here this morning is going to say they love fish more than Jesus. I also don't think Jesus is looking around at the other disciples and asking, Do you love me, Peter, more than you love all these guys? Do you love me more than you love your buddies? Jesus is asking, Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Remember, this was always Peter's boast. When Jesus tried to wash Peter's feet, Peter objected, Lord, do you wash my feet? Lord, the other disciples might let you abase yourself like this, but I love you more than these. Or when Jesus says, you cannot follow me where I go, Peter boldly proclaims, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Lord, others may not be able to go with you, but I love you more than these. Or maybe you remember Peter's declaration in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33. Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Lord, I love you more than these. So now Jesus asks, in light of Peter's denials, Peter, is your love really greater and stronger than everybody else's? And Peter's answer in verse 15 is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Notice that Peter drops the comparative more than these. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's no longer making any claims about the strength of his love compared to the other disciples. All his illusions and presumptions about himself have been stripped away. All Peter really claims is this, I do love you. So Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then he asks again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So now this time Jesus drops the comparative more than these. This is what really matters. This is the real question. Do you love me? And Peter again says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And when Jesus asked a third time, do you love me? We read, Peter was grieved. 
Uh, now, a lot of people want to make a big deal over the fact that Jesus uses a different word for love here in Greek. Uh, I'm not going to get into that because I'm, I'm convinced it's not the reason that Peter is grieved. He is grieved by the fact that Jesus asked for a third time. And he is making the connection between Jesus' three questions and Peter's three denials. Peter is grieved because Jesus is deliberately bringing this up, making him relive the shame, as it were. And this is all taking place while the other disciples are watching. And this time, Peter appeals to the Lord's knowledge. He says, Lord, you know everything. Just like you knew I would deny you, surely you must know that I love you. You know that despite my failure, my weakness, my moral and spiritual cowardice, that I love you. Uh, Now, is Jesus being mean? Is he rubbing Peter's failure in his face? I think Jesus is doing two things. First, he's lovingly and carefully helping Peter face the reality of his denials so that he can experience the reality of forgiveness. When Jesus exposes sin in our lives, it's not that he wants to hurt us. It's that he wants to heal us. He wants to bring sin and shame into his presence so that we might experience his love. But second, and I think this is important, Jesus is allowing Peter to publicly and repeatedly acknowledge his love for Jesus. Jesus is letting Peter undo his threefold denial with a threefold affirmation of love for Jesus. This is the way uh, that one person puts it, that it is an affirmation which now rests its confidence not on the strength of his own love, but on the sureness of Jesus' knowledge. It's like Jesus looks Peter in the face. Sorry, I'm going to start that sentence over again. Jesus lets Peter look him in the face and say three times, I love you. And what I love is that Jesus never says, no, you don't, Peter. You think you do, but you're actually self-deceived. Or Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, you might love me, but um, I, I really, I won't know for at least a year or two. You know, let's just see how the situation plays out, Peter. Jesus, who knows all things, receives these declarations of love from Peter and does not dispute them. What's going on here? Peter is experiencing the benefits of the cross of Christ. Because Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice and was raised from the dead, Peter is no longer identified by his failure. He is identified by his love for Jesus. Because of the cross, Peter does not walk around with his threefold denial as a crushing burden on his back. His Savior took the burden to the cross where he bore it. There is no more shame, no more guilt, and no more regret left to bear. Peter is experiencing the benefits of the cross flowing to him. So Peter experiences the cross Peter is also commissioned to preach the cross. After each affirmation of his love for Jesus, Jesus gives him a command. In verse 15, after Peter says, Lord, you know I love you, Jesus says, feed my lambs. 
In verse 16, after Peter declares his love, Jesus says, tend my sheep. And in verse 17, after Peter declares his love, Jesus says, feed my sheep. As Peter reaffirmed his love for Jesus three times, Jesus calls Peter to care for the flock three times. And this threefold commission is clearly demonstrating to Peter and to the other disciples that Jesus is restoring Peter to a place of trust, whatever his failure had been. Think of it this way. If Peter's threefold denial is a total denial, then Peter's threefold commission must be a total restoration. Uh, and the commission that Jesus gives to Peter is to be a shepherd of the flock. Uh, Jesus loves his sheep. He wants his sheep to be nourished and protected. So if Peter is to love Jesus, he must love the flock that Jesus purchased. You can't love Jesus and not love the flock that Jesus purchased. He must love them by tending to them and feeding them with the same good news that he experienced. And this means that Peter's failure does not disqualify him from being a shepherd of the sheep. It's actually what qualifies him to be a shepherd of the sheep. Now, I want to be careful here. Uh, I'm not arguing against godliness. Uh, I'm not saying it's okay for leaders to be failures and scoundrels. The church has been deeply wounded by ungodly leaders. Uh, everyone, and especially leaders, need to take godliness seriously. The point is simply that Peter's calling comes in the context of his own sinfulness. He must preach the cross out of his own personal experience of the cross. And this is what qualifies a shepherd. Uh, not uh, the level of his walk with God, not a perfect family, not being able to give a perfect theological answer to every question. What really qualifies a shepherd is that he has failures that have been redeemed, wounds that have been healed, and sins that have been forgiven. Uh, so I wonder if Peter could even get ordained in most denominations in light of what he's done. But Jesus entrusts his own bride to a flawed but redeemed person. I, I don't think this is just about pastors. Jesus loves us and he calls us personally to his work. He knows us. He knows who we are. He understands us and our character and our weaknesses and our failures. And he still calls us to his work. Uh, now remember that all of this is happening around that charcoal fire. So there are two places in John's gospel where the charcoal fire appears. It appears both at Peter's denial and at Peter's restoration. Uh, and Jesus is clearly recreating a scene for Peter. I wonder if Peter couldn't smell a charcoal fire without being immediately transported back to his failures. You ever notice that that's the way smell works sometimes? You smell something and it immediately takes you back to a previous place in your life. 
I think that Jesus is letting the charcoal fire become the place of Peter's threefold declaration of love for Jesus and the place of Jesus calling Peter into this shepherding ministry. Uh, Places of failure become places of redemption and grace. You understand that? Places of failure become places of redemption and grace. Painful memories of failure and shame become places where we are commissioned to serve God and others with renewed faithfulness. This is the way that God works. It's part of his economy. So Jesus has dealt with Peter's past. Jesus has commissioned Peter in the present, and now Jesus is going to deal with Peter's future. So in verse 18, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. I think we learn in this verse The cross is not just something to be experienced. It's not just something to be proclaimed. It's also something to be embodied. Uh, There are two references in verse 18 to desire. When you're young, you get to do what you desire. When you are older, uh, you don't get to do what you desire. I could reflect on that for a while, but I'm not going to. But I think the broader point is this life of self-will is going to become a life of coming under someone else's will. And Jesus explains to Peter how his end is going to come, uh, this comment about uh, being dressed and led and stretching out his hands. According to the tradition, Peter was crucified upside down during the Neronian persecution. He stretched out his arms and died like Jesus. Note that John makes the comment in verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. You can glorify God in your death. If Peter can glorify God by dying, think about this. If Peter can glorify God by dying, then that means the glory of God is more important than life. Do you believe that? The glory of God is more important than my life. That means there's no limit that when you reach it, you get to say to God, that's enough. You have to stop here. That's too much that you can ask for me to glorify you. You don't get to do that, God. It has intruded into my space. If you can glorify God by your death, the glory of God is more important than life. Uh, For Peter to stretch out his arms and be taken to a place he doesn't know in order to glorify God means that his life will more and more be shaped into Christ's life. Or to put it the other way, the life of Christ and his sufferings will come to more and more expression in Peter's life. That's the way that we glorify God. 
And this is God's work for us too. I think that in order to do this, God takes us to places we don't want to go and calls us, figuratively or literally, to stretch out our hands for Jesus. To do painful things that feel as if we are being crucified. Someone once said that real grace gives us things we didn't know we needed by taking us to places we didn't want to go. Real grace gives us things we didn't know we needed by taking us to a place we didn't want to go. And in going someplace we don't want to go, we journey into the profoundly redemptive work of Christ. Uh, Now this is hard. What's the temptation when we suffer hard things? Uh, I think it's to say, well, why do I have to do this and that guy over there doesn't have to do it? Why don't they have to go through what I have to go through? And this is exactly how Peter responds in verses 20 and 21. We don't read, and then Peter reflected deeply on his calling and the specifics of his death. We don't actually read that. Peter's first impulse was to turn towards John, the beloved disciple, and ask, Lord, what about that guy? What about him? What are your plans for him? What's your will for his life? Why should things be so hard for me and not for him? Uh, Isn't that human? Isn't that exactly what we do? I mean, I think the Bible is so profoundly psychologically aware of human nature. And Jesus' response is twofold. It starts in verse 22. Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Uh, By the way, that's a rebuke if you aren't hearing it right. What's it to you? That's a rebuke. What business is it of yours? The different roads that I choose for my servant. How is my will for someone's life and how they glorify God your concern, Peter? Peter will bear witness and glorify God in one way. According to verse 24 of our chapter, the beloved disciple will bear witness and glorify God in another way. What is it, uh, you know, what's it to you if it's my will that he remain until I come, out of which people formed all these great ideas that this guy was never going never to die. Jesus is just saying, it's not your business, Peter. But then the second thing Jesus says, and note this because it's so small you can miss it, he says, follow me. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. If Jesus gives one person a hard road and another person a different road, we each have a responsibility to follow Jesus on whatever road he puts us on. It's not our job to speculate how other people ought to be embodying Christ's sufferings. Our job is to be ready to follow him in whatever sufferings he wants us to use to embody Jesus in our lives. Our job is to be ready to embody the sufferings of Christ, however God ordains. This is the way one person puts it. In essence, Jesus was saying, Peter, don't concern yourself with John. 
Concern yourself with me. Keep your eyes on me. Fulfill what I've just commissioned you to do. And leave John's life in my hands. Uh, What can we say about this chapter? Uh, Maybe you are like Peter. In that you've encountered the risen Christ. But there is some point of deep shame or failure in your life that you feel still needs to be removed. Because your confidence is still in the strength of your love rather than in the strength of his love. Uh, If that's the case, Jesus has a word about your past. He has taken your guilt and your shame. Jesus has a word about your presence. He has called you into his service. And Jesus has a word about your future. He is shaping you into his image. And and let's look at verse 25 as we wrap this up. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Uh, I I just want to end this particular sermon series where John's gospel ends with a statement about the greatness of Jesus. There is, according to verse 25, literally no limit to his greatness. He is the Word made flesh. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Good Shepherd. He's the resurrection and the life. And He's your Savior. Follow Him. Amen? Let's pray together.